Hello and welcome to the Achieve Your Goals podcast, the show that empowers you to wake up to your full potential and achieve your biggest goals and dreams. I am your host, Hal Elrod, and I invite you to join us each week as we share actionable strategies to take your life to the next level, as well as interview world-class experts and entrepreneurs who have achieved extraordinary goals themselves, and we ask them to give you a peek behind the curtain and teach you exactly what you need to do to do the same. Ready? Here we go. Willpower doesn't work. Let's be honest. You've tried to improve your life a million times, and a million times you've come back to the drawing board frustrated. You've tried willpower to kick a bad habit, but fell back into old patterns. You've tried New Year's resolutions, but by February, everything reverts back to how it has been the year before. You've set big, life-changing goals, but seem to find yourself far short of them despite hard work. After enough failure, it's easy to conclude that you are the problem. You must not have what it takes, the grit, the inner strength, the willpower. Perhaps you should just settle for the life you have. But what if that assessment was all wrong? Welcome to the Achieve Your Goals podcast. This is your host, Hal Elrod. And what I just read to you was the first page of the introduction of my favorite new book, Willpower Doesn't Work, Discover the Hidden Keys to Success by Benjamin Hardy. I just was chatting with Ben before we are uh, starting this interview. I'll bring him on here in a minute. And I just, I was just geeking out on how much I am loving this book. I'm only, you know, I'm a third of the way through it. Uh, I just got it a couple days ago, but uh, phenomenal. And I told him, I said, this is going to be, or, or this is one of the Bibles of personal development or self-improvement. And, and it is so, it's so fundamental, but not fundamental in a way that we've heard before. It's fundamental in a way that challenges everything that we've learned, everything we've been taught about what it takes to improve our lives, ourselves, you know, in the condition, you know, achieve the things that we want in our lives. And, and this, I, I, I let, let me tell you who Ben Hardy is. If you do not do not know, Benjamin Hardy has been the number one writer on Medium.com since 2016. His new book, Willpower Doesn't Work, just came out in March of 2018. The book has disrupted the idea of willpower and brought the idea of willpower to a new light. The book teaches the best way to get results is to improve your environment. Ben and his wife have three beautiful children. I have had dinner with this man. Uh, he is a good, good guy, and uh, it is a pleasure to bring him on the podcast. Ben, are you there? Yeah, dude. I'm stoked to be here with you, Hal. Dude, I'm, I'm excited to have you. So now do you go by, you prefer Ben or Benjamin or both or either, or how does that work? Uh, let's go with Ben in this case, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, uh, we're friends, so we can we can we can go Ben. All right, I love it, man. So, um, dude, tell me what life's like right now. This is your first traditionally published book. The buzz is insane, and uh, you know, I mean, I'm seeing it everywhere online. Joe Polish is given, you know, he loves it so much. He's given away a Tesla. For, I don't even know exactly. Maybe we'll we'll unpack that story a little more. I'm like, Joe, you didn't offer to give away Tesla when my book came out. What the hell? Um, I think all of Joe's friends are jealous. Like, dude, what? You're giving your Tesla away for Ben's book? You know, all all Joe's friends are authors, so we're all kind of like wondering what's going on. Anyway, dude, but uh, yeah. So what? What's what's life like right now, man? With the book coming out and uh, what's going on? Yeah, man. So uh, I mean, so many beautiful and also so many hard lessons I've learned from this experience. The book actually came out exactly one month ago today. Okay. And, uh, Happy birthday. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Truthfully, it didn't do as well as I expected. I think, as you've said, I, I believe that this book's got a long shelf life. I yeah. think that, it, you know, 
I think it's it's gotten into the hands of people like Hal Elrod. You know, I mean, it's it's in the hands of the right people. Yeah, and that's kind of what some really good networking has allowed. Is just for this book. So I believe that this book is in quantity hands, although it's not in quality. I mean, sorry, it's in quality, quality. hands, quantity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it didn't. You know, it actually had the numbers to hit a lot of the big lists, but the book got flagged by BookScan, which is kind of the organization that tracks books because there was some huge bulk orders, which kind of freaked them out. So they they um they kind of mm. they flagged it so it didn't go on the bestseller list. But that's all right. Um, a bunch of crap. I've been doing I've been doing <laughs> good, man. I think I, I've actually learned some some good hard truths to this experience. One of the biggest hard truths is I'm really good at growing an email list. I get almost a thousand new email subscribers a day from just organic traffic, wow. no paid ads. But I'm realizing I am not the best at creating a loyal, devoted, powerful following, and that that's going to take time. And so, you know, probably five to ten thousand less people on my list bought than I expected to. And if they, if if what I had expected had happened. A lot of different things would have occurred. How many, if you don't mind asking me, sharing how, how many copies did you sell this this first month? Uh, first month, I think was probably it's ish between like probably fifteen to eighteen k. All right, so let let me make you feel way better, okay? <laughs> um, so the Miracle Morning, the month that it came out, I sold fifteen hundred copies, and it took me. So I had no platform. You've got a platform, you know? I, I shouldn't say no platform, but I had very little platform. But I had belief and I was like, I'm, I'm in it for the long haul. Like, I believe this message can change the world as I know you believe your book can do the same. And, and I think it is destined to be a classic. But, but it took me a year and a half and like well over a hundred interviews on other people's podcasts to get back to 1500 copies. So like put that in perspective, you know, Miracle, it's been five years now and obviously Miracle Morning is doing well. So yeah, 1500 copies the first month. So you, you sold 10 times as many as I did. And then it took me a year and a half. You know, I mean, like next month was 700. Next month was 400. Next month was 300, right? Like I just, cause once I, you know, exhausted my platform, then it was like, all right, now I'm at zero and I got to jump on podcasts and I got to promote it and, and share it. So, um, anyway, yeah, man. So you should, you know, well, you're freaking, you're freaking great. I mean, what I've done is I've redefined my audience. So one thing that, the, all this has, you know, clarified for me is what kind of platform do I want to build? There's the whole online marketer thing, you know, Russell Brunson, where you're taking people up and down through different funnels and, and upselling, downselling, you know, selling them this, selling them that. For me, I'm less into the burn and churn model. Yeah. Uh, for me, so I have a mentor. His name is Richard Paul Evans. He's written 38 New York Times bestsellers. And every time he publishes a book, and he's a fiction writer, but every time he publishes a book, there's about 50,000 people who are anxiously waiting to read it. You know, he's got loyalty and he has an author platform. And so, you know, I have a couple of products that I'll sell regularly that will give me a really nice income in different ways than books that I can provide value. But for the most part, I want to do what he's done because I'm really interested in just learning and writing more and more books. And so, you know, it's caused me to reposition even how I onboard new subscribers. So like I write on medium.com. I have, you know, this really great strategy that's worked for me as far as getting new subscribers. But now once I get a new subscriber, I've transformed my, uh, my strategy for how I, how I get engaged with them. Yeah. And it's more about creating value, but then at the end of like a sequence of probably seven or eight emails that are automated rather than selling them a course or something. It's just all about the book. And it's just like, I want to get book buyers, you yeah. know? And so like right now my book, you know, I think it's selling probably a hundred a day or, you know, who knows? I mean, I'm selling like, uh, you know, perspective. I don't know exact, but I was just looking at the miracle morning. It's like 550 on Amazon. My book's like 
1400. But like all of that is just from the new people coming into my email list every day. And hopefully it gets, Mm. you know, down into the like sink, you know, 900 or 800. But like, I just want, as long as it doesn't pass miracle morning, I'm fine with it. As long as it doesn't pass miracle (laughs) morning. That's what I want though. I just want like, I want my new subscribers to, to uh, get a ton of value. And then I want them to understand my purpose. My understanding of my purpose is that I want them to read this book. And then uh, further, I want them to read future books. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, let's unpack. Like I said, the, this book is so rich with content and strategy and, and really just shifting the mindset that we have around willpower and why that's not the key to success and, and why we've, you know, it's, I like, you know, there's, there's almost their element in the beginning of like kind of, if you haven't achieved what you want, it's it's not your fault because you you don't under, we don't understand we haven't been taught the right way and you know you're you're so freaking smart in the way that you approach this stuff. So in your book, one thing that you say early on is if you're relying on willpower to lose weight, improve your relationships, or achieve more at work, you are doomed to fail. So why is that? Yeah, absolutely. So willpower, you know, it's a popular idea in Western culture, because we're very individualistic, we're very focused on ourselves. And unfortunately, there's about a century of research in psychology. And again, I'm a psychologist. And so from a social psychology standpoint, it's, it's almost always situational factors that shape who a person becomes. I mean, my guess is had your car accident not happened, you probably would have never written the Miracle Morning. I could be wrong. Yeah, but no, I, I, yeah, I don't know what I would have. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I would say it's the best thing that ever happened to me because it shifted everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was an experience. You know, it wasn't some inner foot. It was something that changed you. And so there's situational factors, or even just an insight. So basically, you know, I don't want to get too too into the weeds, but basically, the world has shifted a lot. I think that everyone who's on the on the internet, who or who has a smartphone, or who eats packaged food could admit that the world is a different place than it was 100 years ago. And so because the environment has shifted so much, we're seeing changes in humanity and how they operate. We're very addicted to our technology. And it obviously serves us brilliantly. But we're also, you know, we have access to different foods. I mean, when you change an environment, you change the the animals or the species within that environment. That's how evolution works. And so because our environment is so in our face, uh, it's just all-encompassing. It's everywhere. People are becoming very reactive to the environment. And basically what that means is that people's willpower is gone before they even they even have breakfast. Because willpower, from a psychological perspective, is a, it's a finite resource. Mm-hmm. It's, it's something that you only have so much of and then it's gone. And you have to be very thoughtful about... And really another definition of willpower is it's called decision fatigue. So basically it's based on... It's based on decision making. And after you've made so many decisions, your ability to make quality decisions goes away. And so if you're constantly, you know, deciding whether to keep yourself focused or what kind of clothes you're going to wear, what you're going to eat or, you know, what app you're going to use, like you do, we're just making a hundred choices. Whether you're going to look at your phone again, like we didn't have as many choices to make at all times. And so the idea at this point now is rather than bombarding yourself with decisions, it's about making a few decisions that make your life a lot easier. So if you if you create an environment, for example, that allows most of your most of your decision making to be done for you, then you can focus on other things. And so, you know, I go into all sorts of science, but I just want to keep it really simple. Like basically what psychologists say is, is that almost all your behavior is outsourced to your environment. Like in this conversation, I'm talking into a microphone. You know, like this conversation, this situation is in a lot of ways shaping my behavior. Like I'm not gonna like 
get on a treadmill right now. I'm not going to go running. Like we're in a situation. I'm going to have a conversation with Hal. Like if I'm on an airplane, I'm probably not going to smoke a cigarette because in that environment, it just doesn't allow for it. If I'm at a genius network meeting, you know, like I'm probably going to get a lot of epiphanies because I'm surrounded by people like you. I'm like, and so your situation in a lot of ways shapes your psychology. And I think what people have thought about for a long time is the reverse. A lot of people think it's your psychology that shapes your situation. In a lot of ways it is, you know, that's how you proactively create your world. And I'm not disagreeing with that, but I'm at, but this book says, where did the idea come from in the first place? You know, if you have this idea that you want to write a book, you know, the miracle morning, or if you want to write that, I didn't come out of nowhere. It was triggered by some external event. Maybe you read a great book. And so what this book is just saying, and I've kind of already gone too far is, well, I'm just going to, you haven't gone too far, Ben. You haven't gone too far. (laughs) Okay. I'm like, oh man, I've already gone too far in the weeds. I've already lost it. I've already lost it. No, you're Um, good. You're crushing. (laughs) No. Okay. Well, I think I'll, I'll really break down what I say in the intro, which is really simple. If you're required to use willpower in your life, it's probably for one of four reasons. One is that you haven't yet made a choice. So Clayton Christensen, he's a Harvard psychologist, or sorry, not he's a Harvard business professor. He says 100% commitment is easier than 98% commitment. Because if you're only 98% committed, then you don't actually know what you're going to do in every situation. So like, if you're like, I'm 98% committed to like eating sugar-free, then you're at a wedding. You know, it's like, then you have to decide what you're going to do in that situation because the cake looks really good. You know, and if you're not fully sure what you're going to do, usually the situation is going to win. And that's where your willpower gets crushed. And so Michael Jordan once said, the moment he makes a decision, he never thinks about it again. Mm. And so once you're fully committed to something, then the choice is already made. Then the circumstance doesn't derail you because, you know, if you're 100% committed, let's just say to not eating sugar, then it doesn't matter how great the cake looks like you've already chosen. So there is no option. So willpower doesn't really matter. Like you just, it's, it's not an option. You already made the commitment. Point number two is that obviously your why is not powerful enough. You know, like if you're required to use willpower in a lot of ways, it's because you, you don't have enough motivation. You know, you have to actually force yourself to go to work. Like, so there's two types of, uh, of motivation. There's push and there's pull certain things you have to like literally push yourself to do because they're not intrinsically motivating. Other things just pull you forward. They don't take grit or willpower. It's like you, you actually have to get stopped from doing it because it's so interesting to you or so, you know, and how do you actually get yourself to get that level of motivation or how do you get yourself to actually make a powerful decision? And that's where the other two come in. And that's, you know, point number three is is that you're not invested enough in your goal. Like, so I talk a lot about investment in the book. And that's really how you can make p- profound decisions. And that's what I've been studying throughout my whole PhD is what's the difference between dreamers and doers. And a lot of it has to do with just once you start lack- actually investing money in your goal, mm-hmm. you shift your psychology. So I mean, I, I go into a lot of things, but the final one is obviously just environment. If you have to use willpower, it's because your environment is pushing against your goal. And that's kind of where we go from there. Yeah, an environment. I mean, that's uh, from what again. Like I said, I'm about a third of the way through the book, and from what I've what I've gotten is that that's kind of the big shift. Is that it's not this internal willpower that we this fortitude that we have to muster up, right? That that's always a fight, right? Like you said, because either we don't know what we want, or our desire, you know, our why for our goals is not strong enough. As you said, we're not invested in ourselves or our dreams enough, or the environment opposes the goal, right? So these. These factors, the external factors, the environment is what is really 
the key, it's either the key to getting yourself to do the things you need to do, or it's the thing that is stopping you from doing the things that you need to do. Right. Um, so talk about environment. I mean, that, like I said, that, that's a huge concept in the book. So what, what, you know, what's environment? I mean, when I think environment or some people might think, well, like, you know, yeah, there's global warming, the environment's not in a good place. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so, so what, uh, yeah. what are environments in terms of, you know, the context of, of helping us to achieve all of our goals and how, how what are the environments that we are faced with each day? And let's start there, just defining environment as it relates to this. Absolutely. So like environment is anything outside of you. So like if you're hearing my voice, that's a part of your environment. Like it's outside of you, but it's going in you. And if you think about a human being, it's taking in so many things. You know, it's taking in information, it's taking in sounds, it's taking in air, it's taking in food, water. And so the idea is, is that what's outside of you shapes what's in you. Mm. If you stop eating food, your like your inner world is going to change. You're you're going to your body's going to start breaking down. Yeah. The types of foods you put in actually influence your psychology. Yep. The type of people you surround yourself with influence your ideas, your goals, your values, the type of information, the type of experiences. And so, basically, environment is anything outside of you that influences your biology or your psychology. And basically, what most self improvement has done is it's gone, it's basically removed the individual from the environment and acted as if the environment has no bearing on what the person is or what they can do. In psychology, we call that abstraction. They've abstracted the variable or the person from the situation. And and the person is completely defined by the situation. If you weren't alive at this time, you wouldn't even know what a computer is. You know what I mean? If you live in some other era, you would be a different person. And so basically what I talk about in the book is that so there's a really important quote from Marshall Goldsmith, and he says, if you do not create and control your environment, your environment creates and controls you. And that's basically the same thing that Charles Darwin said. He said that basically what happens is, is that species evolve in one of two ways, either naturally or domestically. So natural evolution is what happens when, you know, the environment changes just in some form or fashion, you know, an asteroid hits the earth. And then the animals have to adapt to the changes in that environment. It's unpredictable. It's reactive. Whereas domestic evolution is where you're looking for very specific things. You're looking for like, you know, that's where specialization comes in. It's like, I want a horse that runs really fast. Or like, I want this mushroom to be a lot bigger or taste better. And what you do in order to do that is, is you shape, you know, external very, you know, you change the environment. You fertilize you it, you water it. Yeah. You, right. Yeah. Yeah you, yeah. you change the soil, you change the lighting. You do, I mean, basically you, you shape the environment and you shape the circumstances to get what you want. Uh, and that's more of a conscious, proactive decision-based way of doing it. And so in the book, I talk about two types of optimal environments and I call them enriched environments, which is based on a psychological theory about how to enrich jobs, about how to, you know, so basically where the research in business psychology has gone is that it's all about creating environments where people can be more autonomous and more effective. And that's why there's been such a huge focus on changing, you know, organizational structure, making it less vertical and making it more horizontal, focusing on, you know, you know, you look at companies like Google and they actually like have game rooms, they've got sleep rooms, like the whole focus on, on all of this is realizing that it's actually the environment that influences motivation. But what I talk about in the book is less business and it's more self, like self-help. And yeah. basically I talk about two types of environments. One is high stress and the other is high recovery. And in both of these environments, 
the only way for them to be truly enriching is if you're fully absorbed in the situation. If you're not fully absorbed, if you're even semi-distracted, it means that your situation isn't fully enriched. You know, so in a high stress environment, basically it means that there's some level of difficulty. Like your performance actually matters, like because there's feedback. So like if Hal stopped listening right now during this conversation and like all of a sudden I stopped talking and he wasn't paying attention, like he would not be absorbed in this conversation. Like, but his, in this case, I'm sorry, I didn't (laughs) know what you're saying. (laughs) But in this, but in this case, his performance matters, like because he's, he gets immediate feedback and because he gets immediate feedback, he has to be paying attention. So like in this case, at least for this, for this momentary time, like Hal's situation is pretty enriched. Like He's, we're, we're talking about topics that are sem- semi-new to him, so there's novelty. So basically some of the components to an enriched environment that's focused on high performance is that you know it's, it's challenging. You get immediate feedback. There's consequences for your performance. You know, there's newness. There's novelty. So like all of these things are what are called flow triggers. And the more flow triggers that you can have in your environment, the more enriching it's going to be, the more absorbed you are. The problem is with most people's jobs is that they're not that demanding. They're not dealing with new challenges every day. They're not getting immediate feedback. Like if they do, if they just kick it on, on, uh, on like YouTube or if they're like scoping Facebook every 30 minutes, like they're not going to, their performance isn't that crucial to their everyday job. You know, so most people are distracted. And so most people aren't being forced to rise up to a new and interesting situation. What are, so that's, these, what are the flow triggers? So give me some examples. So factors like accountability, would that be a flow trigger? So some of these big flow triggers are one is immediate feedback, one is difficulty, one is novelty or newness, one is challenge. You know, basically anything that forces you into the moment because flow is all about like the most high, highest possible level of presence. You know what I mean? Where you're just totally absorbed in what you're doing. Yeah. And flow triggers are all situational factors. You know what I mean? They're all, you know, so that's why they've studied flow so much in the form of extreme sports because your performance really matters. Like if you're a snowboarder and you're doing like this huge triple backflip, like you get immediate feedback. If you didn't, fo- you know, if you weren't there, you're crushed. Yeah. But one interesting well, yeah, so that's phase one is just, if you want high performance, you need a situation that forces you to rise up. And one of the quotes I used at the beginning of the book is from Will Durant. He's a historian and he talks about how Basically, the ability of the average person could be doubled if their situation demanded them to demanded them to rise up. But most people, their situations are actually, you know, they're not forcing them to respond. They're not forcing them to do new things. Like if you had to do something where necessity was the case, like if you had a gun to your head, you know, like you would perform differently than, you know, and it's just like it's why Parkinson's law matters. It's like it's why short timelines work is because if you have to get something done or else something bad's going to happen, you start acting a lot differently. Like the short timeline, that's why short timelines work. You yeah. know, that's a flow trigger is just when anything you can do to create a situation that forces you to act. And in the book, I call that forcing functions. You know, they're just, they're, they're situations that force you to function the way you want to. The reverse of all of this is enriched environments for recovery because, you know, in fitness, you're actually, if you're going to push yourself and work out really hard, your growth is actually going to happen generally while you're asleep or while you're resting. You know, like you need to rest in order to actually get stronger. And it's actually while you're resting that, that you actually do get stronger. Uh, the same is true of creativity. Like there's so much research 
in the realm of creativity that says like only 16% of creative ideas happen while you're at work. Like almost always they happen when you leave work and after you're kind of recovering. That's why there's so much emphasis these days on like sabbaticals or like time off or like mini retirements is because that's actually where you're going to get your best ideas because your mind is at rest or showers. That's a, it's a good, yeah. yeah. If, if a, people aren't showering, they're missing out on lots of creative ideas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's like, it's like, you know, recovery is like where you get stronger. It's where you get smarter. And so the problem again with today's cultural environment is that most people are almost always plugged in. They don't actually allow themselves true recovery, true recovery from technology, from work and demands. Like, most people, they take their cell phone with them, even if they go out of the country nowadays. And like, they don't actually allow themselves to just get a break yeah. and when what they're doing is they're missing out on so much. And so basically the idea is, is you need high stress and you need high recovery if you want optimal performance, if you want, if you want to actually grow in the best ways. And sadly, most people haven't set up their life for either. Most people are never fully present with their loved ones when they're at home. They're still semi-distracted or thinking about work or they're on their phone or and they're never actually, you know, very few people actually proactively like sit, make the situation in place where they have to be, have to be present. Like leave your cell phone in your car or like leave it, at, leave it at work. Like blasphemy. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, if you're going to be home, be home. And so it's like, uh, the whole idea is wherever you are, that's where you should be. You have a friend who he puts his cell phone. There's a rule. They all put all the family puts their cell phone in gun case when they get home. I see that's creating your environment, right? Yeah. Like, that's freaking smart because they know that if they don't take such measures, then they're going to they're gonna react in addictive ways. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and one of the simplest examples, I think, of creating your own environment for people to really just go, oh, that, that totally makes sense, right? Is that, you know, not keeping unhealthy food in your house, right? And that, you know, that then it's that you don't have access to it, right? You know, like for me, you know, I, I don't have any dessert at my house, you know, and then also I usually won't order at a restaurant, but like we were at a restaurant the other night, my, uh, my wife and I for our nine year wedding anniversary and, uh, the waitress goes, Hey, surprise, we brought you our most popular dessert. And I'm like, son of a, like, you know, <laughs> and, uh, I'm like, I, I can't turn it down when you put it in front of my face. Right. So it's a great example. Willpower doesn't freaking work. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's just such a bad approach. And the problem is, is that we've made it so popular. Like we've put all this pressure on people to say like, if you don't have willpower, you, you know, you're a loser, yeah. you know, and it's like the research is so clear. It's such a, a, you know, the situation sadly was what shaped you. You know what I mean? Like, you know, they brought you this cake or whatever it was, you know, and obviously you could have said, no, you guys could have taken measures, but yeah. it's awkward and it's hard, Yeah. you know? And so the idea is, you know, how do you, why do you, why would you want your whole life to be hard? Why would you want your whole life to rely on willpower? Like, you know, yeah. like in that case, that was, a random situation, but for the most part, you've controlled your environment. Like you, you want to be healthy, so you're not going to deal with willpower. You're gonna, you're gonna remove that. It's so much easier to avoid a temptation than it is to try to overcome it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, so some of the biggest factors in shaping environment, and and, and think of it this way: like this is really a. I think this is you're teaching how to make life easy or easier, right? You're teaching how to make success as easy as possible. The idea that relying on willpower is the hardest way, it's the most difficult way to achieve our goals and everything else that we want. Shaping our environment is the most intelligent, effective, strategic, and easiest way to achieve all of our goals. And and some, you know, I, I like I give the example, I say, you know, the greatest, one of my favorite philosophies is the greatest gift that we can give to the people we love is to live to our full potential uh, so that we can in, in influence them to live to theirs, right? 
And if everybody we hang out with eats unhealthy food, guess what we're probably going to do, right? Eat unhealthy food. If they all drink excessively when we're hanging out in social situations, we're going to drink excessively. So I think one of the most important environments that you talk about is surrounding yourself with the people, right? That, that I mean, the people in your life, that, that's a huge, if not like number one component of our environment. And uh, any thoughts on that? Like, how do you get around the right people and, and how do you strategically set up the people environment in your life? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, I think that you hit the nail on the head. So Dan Sullivan, who's, you know, a friend of both of ours, yeah, he said something amazing. He said, it's better to surround yourself with people who remind you of your future than people who remind you of your past. Mm. And so it's like, unless you want to just stay the same person you've always been. But I guess that if anyone who's read the Miracle Morning or who's listening to this podcast probably doesn't want to stay the same person they want, they probably want to have, they want to become better. Like, you know, and so there's this intrinsic belief that they actually can change. They can become better. They can do better. They can get better results. And that is one of the core premises of the book. Absolutely, is that you can change. But the only way to do that is actually to change your environment. You can't actually make permanent change in yourself without changing your environment as well to match that change. And so when it comes to people, you know, absolutely, who you are is shaped so powerfully by the people you're with, you know, and so it even dramatizes the person you marry. If, you know, if you marry someone, you're going to become a different person. You're going to have a different life. You're going to deal with different problems, challenges, and internally, you're going to become a different person than if you had married someone different. And, you know, and it's the same, you know, when it comes to making money and, and the level of health you have. And so, I mean, the only reason I'm even on this podcast is because I had, I met Hal through an environment, you know, like we both specifically, you know, have invested money to be a part of a specific network. The and genius so, network. Let's, you know, give Joe a little, throw Joe, throw Joe. Oh, dude, him. I love Joe. You <laughs> know, course. and I even talk all about, I also talk all about Joe in the book. Actually, yeah. you'll get there. There's a, there's a whole section about genius network in the book. Nice. But I mean, so, I mean, here's the question, you know, how do you actually surround yourself with the people you want to be like? I mean, really one of the fastest ways is actually investing. Uh, the other one is is helping helping someone so if you don't have a lot of money you can at least help them so when it comes to like and it, it should be goal specific you know it's like if you want it you, when you're thinking about your future you should probably be thinking about what kind of person you want to be and about what you want to be doing and, and the life you want to be living you know in my case the people i surround myself with have very specific purposes you know it's like it's either career related or it's like based on just people we enjoy surrounding ourselves with as a family. But the reason, well, so when I knew I wanted to be a writer, I, I started to kind of look at who are the people that I want to know? Who are the people that I want to be around that I want to be influenced by, but not only be influenced by, but who are the people who I want to be peers with? And I started to just like look for my favorite writers that were obviously still making waves in the space. Yeah. And then it's just like you start to just study these people. You know, I mean, it's not that hard actually when you actually understand how to do this to actually get in proximity to pretty much anyone. You start to just put yourself where they're putting their self. You start to know the people they know. You start to be a giver, not a taker. You start to invest. Like, just as an example, Ryan Holiday, who is someone who I always wanted to mentor me. Like, yeah. uh, he was just a friend. But, you know, three years ago, I didn't you know Ryan Holly didn't know who I was. You know, I never existed on his field because I hadn't even written a single blog post. And now his endorsements at the top front cover <laughs> of your book. Yeah. And so how do you do that? Well, I looked at all the places he wrote, you know, and then I started trying to figure out ways to write at the same place. And then uh, I just started 
shooting him emails. And eventually I hired him. I hired, you know, after writing for a year and a half or two years, some of my articles had, you know, we had exchanged emails. I asked him if I could hire him to help me write a book proposal. And I paid him a few thousand bucks, took a few hours of his time. And he helped me write my proposal. And then he helped me get an agent. And then I ended up hiring him again to uh, help me write, you know, at least edit the book and make it better. And so it's like, you know, but we had become friends and I've helped him a lot as far as helping him publish on Medium and stuff and helped him get tens of thousands of subscribers. It's like, in order to actually develop true transformational relationships, you've got to be a giver, not a taker. I mean, who wants to be in a relationship with someone who it's just about them, right? Like, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that's the great one of the greatest focuses for anybody is to become someone who is known for adding value for other people. Period. That through and you know, and not not out of trickery or because you're obviously trying to get something, and it you know, there's no manipulation there. It's literally, genuinely developing that you know, and even through daily affirmations or whatever, right? Clarify why you want to become someone of value who serves other people, uh, and it's okay to be. I always say selfishly selfless, right? Which is, it's okay to know that, hey, that by doing that, by adding more value for others, I'm going to have better relationships and more people that I can call on when I need a favor. You know, that's okay, I think, right? But, but not, not keeping score where you're going, all right, I'm only going to add value so I can get something out of this one person and, you know, uh, I'm going to keep, keep <laughs> score, right? So I'd love to unpack here kind of as our closing segment. There's something, uh, it's early in the book. You say, when it comes to achieving goals, Making committed decisions involves, and there's like five bullet points. Number one, investing up front. Number two, making it public. Number three, setting a timeline. Number four, installing several forms of feedback slash accountability. And number five, removing or altering everything in your environment that opposes your commitment. To me, those five steps, like if someone got nothing else, you know, from this interview, those five steps to me are just so crucial. So let's let's unpack those a little bit, even just a you know a thirty seconds, a minute each. Just kind of say, tell a little more on that. So number one, uh, yeah, when it, it comes to making, you got it. All right. <laughs> yeah, I'll just pull out my book. But um, yeah, no, I mean this is this is literally how you proactively shape an environment. Yeah. I mean, it's like if you want to, if you want to achieve some goals. Again, I talked about investing up front, and the reason why investing is so important is because first off, investing, you know, it changes your identity, like. So one of the big things I try to break down in this book is that there's so many Western myths. You know, one is that confidence creates success. No, it's actually success that creates confidence. If Mm. you start getting small wins, you do your morning routine, you're going to have more confidence. (laughs) I'm telling you. So confidence is a byproduct. Personality is also a byproduct. Your personality is not what shapes your behavior. Your behavior shapes your personality. You can change who you are. You obviously have to do that through specific environments and through specific behaviors. But what's cool is, is investing money in something is one of the fastest ways to change your environment and to change your identity. And it also just, it gets you committed, you know, so you need to get committed to whatever it is you're trying to do. And number one is just investing in yourself, you know, and that can, it was by investing, by example, that I was able to get in proximity to Ryan Holiday. Mm-hmm. And by having him in my environment, that challenged me in a different way. And it allowed me to write an epic book proposal. I would not have been able to write it without him. So investing is just key to uh, to becoming who you want to be and to increasing your commitment. Yeah. Okay. Um, making it public is just matching your outer world with your inner world. So one of the things that Joe Polish, who we've already talked about, he talks. So from an addiction standpoint, 
willpower actually is the opposite way of trying to overcome an addiction. Um, willpower is trying to do something by yourself. Hmm. It's trying to fight a silent battle. Yeah. Uh, and as Joe says, you're as sick as your secrets, you yeah. know, and will, I mean, and an addiction is really an isolating behavior. You isolate yourself rather than connect. The opposite of addiction is connection. The only way out of an addiction is actually through an environment, through support and through love. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of an addiction standpoint, but in general, in any form of goals, Mahatma Gandhi said, happiness is when what you think, what you say, and what you do are all in harmony. Yeah. And so the whole idea of making it public is just, if you want to do something, tell people about it, like actually start to put it out there so that then there's immediate accountability and feedback because you're, you're actually saying it. And there's all sorts of research on public commitment that basically says that if you say you're going to do something, you're far more likely to do it because as a human being, you want to be seen as consistent. Yep. You know, and if you, if you're telling all your loved ones that you're going to start eating healthy and then you just keep eating donuts, they're going to, they're going to call you on it if they're real relationships. And they're going to judge you, like yeah. it or not. They're going to judge you. Yeah, and it doesn't feel they you. are. No, well, for it me, like, like that's when I decided I wanted to run a, an ultra marathon, I had never run more than a mile in my life. I hated running. And so that was my, literally, that was my strategy. That's, I did exactly what you said. I made a, and it was for a charity. So I would even looked, I would look really bad if I, cause I publicly committed, Hey guys, I'm going to run this, you know, ultra marathon to raise money for the front row foundation at the Atlantic City Marathon on this date. Right. So I, I put it out there and I made it public. And to me, that's one of the best forms of accountability. And like you said, if it wasn't for that public, if I would have just written it down in my goals and kept it a secret, I probably after the, you know, second or third run when I hated the way it felt, and my body ached, I probably would have not kept going. But it was like, I have to now because I put my integrity on my character and reputation on the line. So I love that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, you're you're just creating these situational factors that force you to be the person you want to be. It's like, if you want to get in shape, tell everyone you're going to get in shape. Yeah. You know, and then the next one is just even, makes it even more compelling. Set a timeline, like literally get, you know, all this stuff sounds so obvious when you're going through it, but it's like, give yourself a date. And like, make there be consequences if you don't hit that date, like sign up for that marathon or buy that plane ticket, yeah. like actually have a date and, and the investment is there. Like you bought the plane ticket or you signed up for the marathon and you paid 200 bucks yeah. or you, you know, you signed up for the charity. Like all of these things can be linked together. You know what I mean? But if you have a timeline and what I like to do is I actually like to create. So like I heard one of the differences between busy people and productive people is, is that productive people set unrealistic timelines. Like they actually leverage Parkinson's law, which is yeah. just this whole idea that, you know, work fills the space you give it. And so like one way to like make positive behavior happen is, is like just me, for example, I have an agent. I'm going to tell her that I'm going to get my book proposal to her way faster than I want to, because now that it's public and now that she expects it, like now I have to do it. And so it's like you give yourself shorter timelines and it makes you force yourself to figure it out. Installing several forms of feedback and accountability is just getting other people invested in your goals with you. So it's like, if you're going to, you know, obviously you could hire an accountability partner or a coach, or you could, you know, have a partner who's involved in the project that you're working on, you know, or just have someone who expects you to rise up, you know, marry someone, for example, or surround yourself with people who expect, who actually hold you accountable to what you're doing. Like, yeah, I just think, you know, the more forms of accountability you can create, you know, around you for your behavior, the better. Yeah, uh, I agree. Yeah, and then me, just the last one. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say for me, 
uh, one of the best forms of accountability was I formed an accountability when I was trying to hit a huge sales goal, I was trying to double my sales. It was my last year with my company. And uh, I was I, b- both to be in alignment with purpose of helping others. I thought it only is going to be meaningful if I help other people, if I bring them on the journey and I help them do do better than they've ever done before too. And so to do that, I scheduled a weekly accountability call ever, with like 20 other sales reps, but I led it. And so when you're leading a group to do something and you're all making commitments to each other and you're the leader of that group, well, you look really bad, <laughs> right? If you're, you know, you're letting not just yourself down, you're letting everybody down. If you show up to the call and you're like, oh yeah, yeah, I didn't actually follow through with my stuff. Did you guys? Right. So I think that's a beautiful form of feedback and accountability, right? Is to you actually be the leader of an accountability, even if it's only one other person or five other people, you know, whatever. Right. Um, yeah. So just, just an idea on how somebody could implement that. But uh, yeah, dive into the last one. I love it, dude. The last one is just really you being honest with yourself. I mean, it, it we already talked about, but if you actually are making a commitment that you want to do something, you need to remove everything that would impede you from actually making that commitment, you know, and that's hard. That's the hard truth. That may literally mean removing people uh, or removing commitments. Like you, Jim Collins, who's the guy who wrote Good to Great, he said, if you have more than three priorities, you have none. And it's like, Mm. you know, everything you say yes to, like you're saying no to something else. And, And chances are you're saying yes to a lot of things that are opposing a commitment, a goal, or a priority. And you have to remove those things. Like that's hard, but it's, it's only hard short term. Like it's so much easier to say no initially or to remove the sugar. It's, it's hard in a moment, but then you've created the scenario where the rest of your life is, is pulling you the direction you want to go. And so you just, if you really want to do something, you have to remove the stuff that's stopping you from doing it. Like if you really want to be focused at work, take the apps off your phone or just like leave your phone somewhere else. Like remove the stuff that's stopping you and the people and the things and the commitments and the distractions. Remove all the stuff that's stopping you from being who you want to be. And if you're not willing to do that, then you're not actually committed because commitment, as I talk about in the book, is not internal. It's demonstrated by creating an external environment that actually evidences to yourself that you are committed. You know, you, if you're not going to create an environment to support your goals, then you don't really, then the, then the goal is not really that important to you. Like you're just relying on willpower and you're, it's just not real. Dude, it is, it is such a powerful paradigm shift. And if you're listening to this again, if you don't shape your environment, it will shape you. And Ben's new book, willpower doesn't work. The book will teach you how to purposefully shape your environment. And uh, I, I, again, I cannot uh, speak highly enough about this book. Ben, phenomenal work, man. I'm so glad that you uh, you know took your, your writing from Medium and you finally uh, put it into a book because I think this is going to be a classic, man. And I'm, I'm really proud of you. Uh, and I'm, I'm grateful to know you, brother. Dude, I love you, Hal. You're freaking amazing, man. Thanks for taking the time to have me on your show. And I hope to, to be with you. <laughs> In person, more often, man. Yeah, we got we get get to get to the Genius Network uh, again soon. Here, uh, I'll be at the annual event. So at the latest, I'm sure we'll we'll get, we'll get get time there, and we'll go to dinner again, and uh, and get maybe maybe a one on one dinner, you know, or or dessert after everybody yeah, else. We gotta just hang out, man. I want to hear about that's your, right. Your, you know, your new writing stuff and just everything you're doing, dude. Awesome, brother. Well, thanks for being on and achieve your goals, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning in. I love you. I appreciate you. Uh, the book is Willpower Doesn't Work: Discover the Hidden Keys to Success by Benjamin Hardy. By the way, Ben, where's the best place to get it? Amazon or Barnes & Noble? Amazon's cool. Amazon. Wherever. Wherever Amazon's people easy, prefer right? to buy books. If you've got yeah, the internet, internet on your devices, go to Amazon and grab the book. 
you will love it. You will thank me for it. Uh, well, I don't know if you'll thank me for it, but you'll be, you'll be glad you got it. So Achieve Your Goals podcast listeners, I love you. Appreciate you. I know I said that, but it's how I like to close the show. So I uh, go out there today and make a difference for somebody else and expect nothing in return. Just do it because it's the right thing and do it because it will enrich your life many, many, many times over. And I will talk to you next week. Everybody take care. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the Achieve Your Goals podcast and to get access to today's show notes, transcript, and exclusive content from Hal Elrod, visit halelrod.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Achieve Your Goals podcast. 